Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Go ahead and ring that notification bell, and you'll get notified when I post content each and every week. Been looking forward to the discussion today. My guest is Malia Lazu, author of the new book, From Intention to Impact, A Practical Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Malia is an award-winning tenured strategist in diversity and inclusion, a lecturer in technological innovation, entrepreneurship, and strategic management at the Sloan MIT School of Management. She's also a former executive vice, regional, vice president and regional president of Berkshire Bank, and I can't wait to tap into her expertise. Malia, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, as I said before we came on, uh, I really enjoyed your book and I've been looking forward to have this conversation. So I guess the first question I'll have for you is um, what motivated you to write a practical guide for diversity, equity and inclusion uh, for businesses? I thank you and thank you again for having me on and thank you for reading my book. You know, I I often wonder, I'm like, okay, who's really reading it, right? right. Um, and, and all of that, but I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I wanted to write a guide and I wanted it to be accessible and practical because we are at this precipice, right, of our society, of our economy, um, really trying to figure out how do we go forward, right? How do we go forward in a global economy? And um, what we're finding is that some of our biggest strengths come from us being such a diverse country and as, you know, being welcoming to so many. Um, and so there are a lot of companies who know that and, and who believe that and who really are trying um, to to include understanding that it'll future proof their company. And I wanted to give some basic steps, right? Um, and, and some ways to go about it so that people who were earnest would actually have a guide to use. Hmm. Um, the surge in DEI awareness uh, for corporate America obviously happened after the tragic death of George Floyd. Um, yet some of their initiatives and remedies were um, superficial at best and cynical at worst. Uh, you write about the Walmart Juneteenth ice cream example, uh, which I found just comical. Um, but why do you think that most companies were not able to translate that sentiment into meaningful practices that actually address systematic problems of racial exclusion? Um, and they continue to have a lack of real solutions to improve diversity and equality in their corporate structures. Yeah, yeah, they do, right? And I think it's because it's the same people who, whether it's unconsciously or consciously uphold um, the, the current culture, you know, which is white, heteronormative, right? Um, and th they are the ones in charge of setting right? The, um, the strategy forward. And um, this is why in the book, you know, I talk about um, white ignorance, right? This theory of Charles Mills and, you know, this, this ignorance that refuses to, um, to resolve itself, right? It's, it's, it's needed. And, um, you know, it's important for people who want to go from intention to impact to understand what are their narratives that may even have them being nervous, you know, um, I mean, I've had folks come up to me and say, you know, I agree with everything you say, but I just worry about my sons and the future they may have, right? Talking about their white 
children, right? And while that seems like a very natural thing for someone to do, it's actually something that's based in white supremacy that protects white privilege. And if you understand that, you might not say it that way, right? You, you, you might not look at it that way. Um, and I think really that's what corporations need to understand is that if they really want to do this, that it's not about just, you know, burdening HR and not giving them budget and telling them all of a sudden to change the culture, but it's about being able to self-reflect on what's important of the in the culture, what are those sacred cows, and what might we have to change in order to get the impact we'd like to see. Um, something I found very interesting, you wrote about uh, the concept of decentralization. Um, why is that such a key factor in addressing the challenges of corporate DEI programs? You know, I think decentralization is something that really should be used with any organizational structure, right? I think it strengthens organizational structure where it can be done. Now, in corporations, obviously, there is a hierarchy, right? Like you can't necessarily supersede that hierarchy, but there are places within a corporation where hierarchy shouldn't matter, right? And so when you think about DEI, you just need your true believers, right? You're not going to win everyone over, right? There are some people that do not believe in it. Um, but, you know, as one of my elders like to say, Jesus only had 12 disciples. We don't need everybody, right? We just need some true believers. But they need to be able to do what they do, right? So whether it's in the mailroom or it's an office manager, right, or it's the CEO, they should all have the same ability um, to work on DEI and to be inclusive and not necessarily own, wait for edicts from above um, or only do it if it's in the budget. And so decentralizing allows for these pre-existing networks. You know, um, I talk about the employee resource groups, right? Just different configurations that aren't hierarchical based um, that'll let you find your champions of DEI and your catalysts of DEI and together they'll innovate a new culture for you that's authentic and that will be sustainable. Um, another thing you, you list in your book, uh, the seven stages from intention to impact. Uh, what I found interesting, what I noticed is that three of the stages revolve around pushback and resistance. Um, which you kind of alluded to in, in your last answer. Uh, why is it so important to call out that pushback and address it openly and forcefully during uh, the corporation's journey towards being more inclusive? Pushback, if you're not able to navigate it properly and, and, and really understand what is a consideration that needs to be taken in and what is bias, right? And, and those often are two different things, but they get conflated, right? And if you can't navigate between that, what ends up happening is you end up just staying in the first three steps, right? Which are, yay, right? We signed a pledge. We're going to do a training, right? We, we have a hire. Let's try to make them, you know, that person diverse, right? Um, and you, you know, you take action on low hanging fruit and you'll start getting pushback, right? And it can be anything from someone saying, oh, so are we going to hire less qualified people now, right? Um, to someone saying, well, that's not compliant, 
right? Um, DEI is illegal, right? This is a common one that's coming up now when that's actually absolutely not true, right? Um, it, it is not illegal. Um, and because it's being targeted, um, you know, it can seem like, well, you know, this is just us being safe. But really what you have to understand is it's that you are abdicating your power, right? Um, and you're not protecting your employees and consumers the way they would like to be protected. Um, can you speak to the difference between being um, anti-racist and non-racist as it relates to addressing some of the challenges of DEI? I wanted to call that out. Yes, yes, you know, and, and I'm so thankful for, you know, the uh, the history of, you know, critical race theory and Angela Davis, right? And we have, we now have these terms that can help us name, right, where we want to go. Um, and um, I think that's really important, right, as we talk about um, even the evolution of DEI, right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when it was called affirmative action and then it became diversity, right? And then it was DNI, right? <laughs> like it's been this continual, um, you know, but this idea of not being racist um, as being a, an enough statement, right? B being a statement that should satisfy people. Um, I really wanted to double click um, on that because what we're seeing with fatigue, right? With the George Floyd fatigue um, is that people are starting to fall back on norms, right? And so people are starting to be comfortable with being nice people, um, you know, decent people, wishing everyone well, definitely not racist, definitely not homophobic. Um, but that's just not enough, right? And, and the idea of being an anti-racist is proactively deconstructing, right? The the racist structures and, and not just sitting um, at, well, racism exists, but I'm not one. So it's okay because being an American, you uphold racist structures every day. I mean, you know, you and I, right? We we uphold them. Um, it's called America. It's called a tax structure, right? It's called an education system. Um, and so it's really not enough to just not be racist, but you really have to work towards, right? You have to be an anti-racist. And, um, you know, we talk about, in the book, um, you know, some frameworks to do it. But for me, what I really enjoyed about that section of the book was talking about that experience that I had in Alabama, you know, and, and because the cop, so the conversation and everyone get the book, just is like a little Easter egg for you. But the conversation was with this, um, you know, good old boy from Alabama um, who had a Confederate flag, um, you know, on the side of his house. And um, when I asked him about it, the first thing he said to me was that, you know, this wasn't about slavery for him. His family was too poor to own slaves. And obviously just, you know, you, you get this whole, emo you know, you're seeing a Confederate flag in the streets of Alabama. You, you know, th th there's so many layers, especially I think for those of us who are um, you know, maybe, you know, I, I was raised in Hawaii, right? I live in, uh, you know, in the Northeast. Um, you, so you're like, oh my gosh, right? Like I, I'm in it, like I'm in this moment and, and this area. And for him to say that I should be comforted because his family didn't own slaves, you know, it, it seemed like 
such an odd thing, right? S such an odd blanket to pass me, if you will. Um, and it felt like in the extreme, but it felt like how it feels when someone tells me they're not racist. You know, it's sort of like, well, what am I supposed to do with that, right? So there were slaves and your family wasn't trying to free people who were being considered chattel. Your family was too poor to buy any of them, right? Like, like, like that's somehow an inadequate response. And so, um, you know, tying that story to this idea of not being racist, um, I thought helped illustrate the point really well. <laughs> and, and I appreciate you writing uh, from such a personal perspective because you you write about just the visceral how you had to take a step back and really process walking into that house with that flag. And uh, it was just a, it was really such a human moment because, yeah, that would be a, a, a real you'd have to think about. Do I even want to go in this place with this giant Confederate flag? So so kudos to you for sharing that story, because I think it's such a profound nuance of this conversation. Thank you. Um, Next question. Um, you also write about uh, what you what you label, which I think is is on point, performative DEI, uh, and why it's so counterproductive. And and just to, the reason I chuckled a little bit when I heard this because when George Floyd happened, and a lot of corporates were were doing different things. I was part of an organization, and I remember looking around one lunchtime, and we're gonna go out, and you know, they had the leaders, and everybody was we're gonna kneel for eight minutes and forty six seconds. You know, we're gonna kneel and. Now look around and there's a meal you know, on the, rice, meal yeah. on rice. No. <laughs> right. And here are all these, <clears throat> these corporate leaders and <clears throat> okay. And it's like, all right, the eight minutes were up. All right, get back to work. You know, I mean, it was, it was, so when you wrote about that, I just kind of smiled because I said, you know, that's a, that's such a salient point uh, about the performative nature of some of these programs. So can you speak to that and how you can address that when you see it? Yeah. You know, I think George Floyd, you George Floyd was this moment and this unfortunate confluence, right? Because we had Ahmad, right? We had Brianna. It, it was this like boom, 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 boom. Now let's now let's be straight, right? The stats show us that at least two black people are killed by police every day. Right. right. So this is also happening every day. But there was this moment, right, of a black man being hunted down in the street, a black woman being killed in her bed. Right. Like and then all of a sudden the video of a lynching. Right. A, a lynching, a public lynching. And um, we also did not have a government response. And I think that that's part of the reason why the corporates came so hard, yeah. because you know, obviously there's going to be a response, right? There's going to be a reclamation of power, right? There's going to be, um, uh, you know, uprisings, right? Within certain communities um, about, about this murder and who can tame, right? Who can get the public calm again? It's normally the government. Right. And the president would come out. Right. And I mean, you know, you even have pictures of George Bush trying to do it during Rodney King. Right. Right. Like, you know, hey, there's a better way. Awkwardly. Blah, 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 right. Whether it was earnest or not, it was something right. that leaders would then start negotiating. Right. And, and you could move forward in some way. Um, we now had an executive branch that was completely indifferent to this lynching. Right. If not 
I mean, at, on his best days, both signing the issue, right? So who was going to be the power structure to come in and say this was wrong, right? And so you have Jamie Dimon taking a knee with his fist in the air, um, you know? And so why do we know that's performative, right? Because Ben and Jerry, you know, Ben Cohen also did things, right? But his wasn't performative, right? How do we know the difference? Well, a month after Jamie Dimon took that knee, he asked his shareholders to vote against a civil rights audit, a third party civil rights audit, right? It's understanding that those dots, especially for marginalized communities, especially, you know, for the black people at that moment, those dots get connected and we see that it's FOS, right? Like we see that it's performative. You didn't mean it. Like that knee and that fist, that means something to our community, right? You're sending out signs of solidarity. So if you're in solidarity with us, the least you can do is clean up your own side of the street, right? The least you can do is a third party audit. I mean, that's not even policy changing, right? That's literally a report which we can choose to never see the light of day. Right. So that's when, you know, it's performative. Right. And I think, you know, George Floyd, again, $50 billion, right. Um, was pledged after, after that killing. And the latest that I saw was about 258 million have actually made it to the streets. Right. So performative. Right. And, and that's why we have to talk about it because I think what I hear companies say, right. As, when I'm on the inside is like, well, we try and we just don't understand why. And the fact of the matter is, is that's your try, right? Your try is um, activist cosplay. And then when you get a moment to actually be an activist, you capitulate. Um, and so that's, that, that's really not helpful to us, right? And it's also why you will be called out on it, right? If you give us receipts, we're going to show you them. And um, a lot of people made a lot of pledges that were absolutely reactionary. That was not an organized response in any way. They didn't know where the money was coming from, where the money was going, right? They they didn't know any of these things, but they they did it anyway. And that's performative, right? I think the community would have actually respected the, you know, corporations, if they were to say, you know, we're going to get rid of, um, you know, Corey or, you know, laws that keep formally incarcerated folks out, right? We're going to use our lobbying prowess to get the police reform bill passed, right? Like, you know, keep your money, give us your resources, right? Like, because, you know, we, you're not going to give us that money anyway. So, you know, help us in other ways that you might actually be able to pull off. You know, I think the community would have been much more thankful, right, for a support in passing the police reform bill than a, than a pledge of money that was never going to make it to the streets. Very well said. Um, the next question I have for you is kind of taking a step back and um, it's something, conversations I've been having with, you know, my peers, younger people, my dad, you know, my dad, thank God, you know, my dad's still around. I get to talk to him. Um, so as, as people of color, um, how much longer do we continue to knock on the door of corporate America demanding to be let in 
rather than trying to build our own corporate structures and businesses, you know, why keep asking to come in somewhere where we're not invited? And I, and you, you write about killer Mike, which, which is awesome. Cause I think he's, he's on that, that, that street of trying right. to known, right. right, known. right. It's a bunch of people of color coming together, being like, exactly. we're creating our own, you know, our own state street. Right. Exactly. And so, so, you know, from that perspective, you know, where's that pivot to where it's like, I need to, we need to start doing our own thing or is it, or, or is it, I mean, obviously corporate America is not going away. Right. But at some point, how much longer do we have to knock? Right. 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 And why do we keep knocking? Right. Um, so, you know, this is this, this is a really interesting tension, right. That I, and I don't know how best we have this conversation. Right. But it is, what is our tie to capitalism, mm. to American capitalism, right? What is our tie there? Um, so let's just put that there, right? As we're talking about that, let's just have this be a thought bubble sort of above the conversation. Um, we absolutely need to create our own economies and we need to remind people that we have to do this every generation because it's taken from us and sometimes physically birth to the ground, right? So we need to build and build telling the world how we're building and that we need to protect this and that we don't want any more Tulsa's and redlining and this and that and blah, blah, blah. I'm also completely down to have a Garveyite kind of conversation, right? If we want to, because mm -hmm. I believe we can do that too, mm -hmm. right? Now let's bring American capitalism back into the question, mm -hmm. right? And I think... We're doing both, right? We have entrepreneurs. We have people who are building economies as independently as they can and building economies within mainstream, right? A la Oprah Winfrey, right? A la Jay-Z, right? Um, and these are really important, right? And, and we can't, we need them and we need con to continue to have that Black excellence because they're the ones who can open the back doors. They're the ones who can get the windows open. They're the ones who can be like, when I flash the light three times, y'all come running in, right? And and we need that. And that's what I saw when I was at the bank, right? Um, I was able to put money out in the streets that I couldn't do with the CDFI I'm a chair of, right? That, that I couldn't even do with a fund, right? We were a small bank, 22 billion, right? It, it, it's not, you know, we can't compare, right? Um, so we need that. And there also are people who want that, right? I work with amazing Black employees every day who work for corporations who are bettering their lives and themselves, who weren't amazing football players, right? <laughs> like, but were able to create 529s, right? We're, we're able to get out of the community, jump a class, if you will, right? Um, because of them working their way up the corporate ladder. Um, and I don't want to dismiss that, right? I right. think that their journey is important for us, right? And they need to be able to be protected in those corporations. And we all buy stuff from the corporations, right? That hire these brothers and sisters. And, you know, and we need to make sure that we have their back while they are, you know, not all of us are corporate folks. And I think that goes across the line, right? Black, white, right? Whatever, gay, straight, right? But some folks 
are corporate folks, right? And they want to know that they're going to get a paycheck, a 401k, they're going to have a ladder to work up, and they're going to have a better life at the end of their career. And um, they deserve that, right? They deserve that too. Um, now, my last American capitalism wrap up, we could change so much, as you said, the minute we decide we're going to stop asking. As we saw with Harriet Tubman, right? And the famous quote, I freed a thousand slaves and I could have freed a thousand more, right? Um, as we saw with Martin Luther King and how Harry Belafonte always used to say, if everyone who said they marched with Martin marched, the bridge would have fallen down. <laughs> Right, like, so true. Um, we're not all there, right? We're, we're some of us do want to be accepted, right? Some of us do want to ask, and so I think working towards self determination is important, and doing it with love um, and understanding for us in particular, right? Um, you know, I was talking, I was talking trash about, you know, someone who I thought had, you know, sold out the movement. This was decades ago. And um, one of the elders said, um, this is just the buzz between us and victory, right? Like, we're like, they're all on our side, right? Like, yes, they messed up. Yes, they whatever, whatever, right? But they're not the end, right? And I think it's important, you know, to you know, even, you know, I, I try to even find love for Clarence Thomas, right? And be like, listen, he's just a Black man trying to get through, you know? And while I have my own personal feelings, if I'm going to throw rocks at the Supreme Court, he's not getting the first rock. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just can't do it. Like, and I have very strong feelings about the man, right? But is it Clarence, right? Or is it, Mitch McConnell, John, you know, Justice John Roberts, right? Is, is it all of them that allowed, and ain't none of us said he was our leader, right? <laughs> like, right. it was them who gave him that power, right? Like, um, so, you know, and again, not to make this about, you know, but finding that empathy, I think is important as we look at the movement and just what we want and people's journeys, you know? No, I completely understand. I completely understand. And so I, I, I say, I, I know I wanted to ask you that question because I think um, there is a feeling out there that there needs. We probably need to have a little bit more of that. We probably need to explore that a little more. And, and like I say, I think there are people like you mentioned who are doing it, um, but it's just at some point. Um, when are we ready to say right. okay? Right? right. Like right. you know, because Garvey had the ship, right? I mean, he yeah. was like, let's go. Yeah. Right. And and he couldn't fill it. Right? right. Harriet Tubman didn't have a waiting list for the Underground Railroad. And, you know, and you think about that now and you think like that's insane. Right. But then you look at again. Right. Like we are more free now than we ever have been. And we're still here. Right. We're, 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 you know, we're not dusting off plans of, um, you know, creating a, a free country. Right. We're, we're not, um, you know, we're not reading Franz Fanon and, um, you know, and, um, the way we were. Right. So this idea of self-determination, um, I think still very much has an American lens. And when we are ready, 
we have the blueprints, right? We have the history. Yep. As long as we don't forget it, as long as we don't let them burn all the books, um, <laughs> you know, we will still have some of those blueprints. Um, and you know, that that that's a that's one of the hard things that I realized in being an organizer, you know, and I talk about in the book when I saw that quote, culture eat strategy for breakfast, and how I just like broke down because I felt like the last, you know, decade plus of my life was a complete waste of time because we were creating these strategies that were being lost in a culture, um, you know, that when I started doing this work, you know, um, you know, people were still kind of doing blackface, right? I mean, like, like yeah. there was yeah. still, right? Like, no, it's true. Um, you know, the, the Archie Bunker was still in reruns, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. but there was, you know, um, still that feeling. And, um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's really important for us to recognize where we are and what we want to take forward and then figure out how to do that, you know, because yes, there will always be revolutionaries, thank goodness. Um, but we also need to figure out why so, why there's a part of human nature that is that gets comfortable quickly right that can let itself be boiled you know um stalin had a saying right how do you um you pluck a chicken one feather at a time right to um lessen the squawk right like um it, it's it's a trope that a lot of authoritarian theories and leaders use because it works. And I think that's the conversation. I don't know how we have amongst ourselves, you know, sure. I don't know if sure. we just have continuing, you know, we get as many people to Ghana, you know, as possible. And we have like, you know, I, and again, I don't know if we need everybody, but um, to your point, I do think that we need more revolution, right. That, that we need to understand that, um, that, we should be reluctant victims. Again, well said. Uh, couldn't couldn't express it better. Um, my last question for you. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us on a on a on a, a, a note of hope. Uh, so, what message of hope or encouragement uh, do you have for leaders committed to building more inclusive workplaces? So, my message for hope for leaders is that once you start, it works just like working out, right? Like no matter what you want to do for your health, if you start working out, you know, in an earnest way, right? Like you will feel better, even if you don't change a thing in your diet, right? Um, it's inevitable. So is this work, you know, once you do it in earnest, once you get through the seven stages, right? You're able to get through that pushback and really make changes that'll shift your culture and make your company more welcoming. It'll make your company more innovative, right? It'll make your company retain talent for longer, retain better talent for longer. Um, and that will all come once you start the work. So, um, you know, the hope is in the doing and it's up to you if you start that work. It's not up to me, right? People of color, women, people with disabilities, LGBTQ community, we all know the value we bring. We all know the value we bring to the world. It is, do you, does your company know? 
Um, and are, are you willing to, to do something about it? Um, and if you are just start right five minutes a day, um, you know, and, and you will see, you, you will see a change for the better in your company. Well, Malia, uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's an excellent read. It's right on time. Uh, I think we are at a pivot point, uh, with these programs. And I think you have laid out a view and a vision of clarity, um, that I think it's, it's, yeah, you, you're doing the work, you're doing the work and, and congratulations. And thank you for going into those spaces and, um, advocating and, and, and really shedding light on the real problems that, that plague some of these corporations as it relates to diversity. So thank you for your work. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. My guest, uh, this has been another edition of the Edric Show. My guest has been Malia uh, Lazu. She is author of the new book, From Intention to Impact, A Practical Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Uh, I mean, you can get it everywhere. I'm assuming it's uh, Amazon and local bookstore, anywhere. Local bookstore, Kindle. Yep. yep. Uh, get it. Every- if there's a, uh, if, do you have a website or, or a place where yes, people can go? Yes, you can go to the lazugroup.com l-a-z-u group.com t-h-e um or you can go to mit press and and find it there as well but check me out the lazugroup.com at malia lazu on socials um and we can definitely help you find the book if you can't excellent excellent thank you again uh, malia for your time thanks so much this has been another edition of the edric show i am your host edric jerome as promised this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people go ahead and hit that subscribe button ring that notification bell you'll get notified when i post this interesting content each and every week i want to thank you for tuning in and i will catch you on the next episode